We're going to be starting in uh, Genesis uh, chapter 11, verse 10, and we're going to go through 12, 9. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Ru lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, went with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going on toward the Negev.
So I, had, I asked Nick to read those verses um, again because he nailed all the names so well last week that I thought he would be able to do so again. He did not fail, so very well, well done, Nick. Um, so I just want to start by asking a question, I guess. Uh, it's a question that I've been thinking about a lot, um, looking at Genesis 10, 11, 12, um, specifically chapter 11. But just try to answer this for yourself. Like, how does the world define success? How does the world define success? What, what does it take to make one successful? Maybe you answered, oh, it takes money, or it takes a good job, or maybe certain accomplishments is, is what makes you successful. You have to accomplish certain things. You have to succeed in certain ways. And the world defines success. But, like, the world defines success by accomplishments, by what you can earn, by what you can do. And... Because of this, it's, like, it's no wonder that people are drawn to put their hope and their identity and, and their time and their efforts into these types of things, to, to earning more money or to having a better job or to raising themselves on a, any, on a social class or anything like that. Like People are drawn to put their identity in these things. I mean, people, money, jobs. Spouses, relationships, fame, drugs, government. And what you continue to see is that as people try to find their identity, as they, they put their hope in, in their, their hope for success in those types of things, it just adds weight, it adds a burden because those things were not meant to truly define success or were defining success the wrong way. And I ask that, I say that, specifically looking at chapter 11, where Tanner finished off last week. And this morning, we're going to spend a lot of time contrasting Genesis 11 with Genesis 12. Um, as I was kind of working through the sermon this week, I'm like, I was thinking, we're spending, in the words I say, it's almost spending just as much time in Genesis 11, which we talked about last week, just as much as we're looking at Genesis 12 going forward. And I think this is important because if we're ever going to see Genesis 12, see this call of Abram fully, to see the full weight of it, we have to realize the culture, the setting of where he's being called out of. I think this is really important because we saw in chapter 11, specifically 1 through 9, um, we didn't read it this week, but last week we saw this called the Tower of Babel. There's people that were trying to make a name for themselves. They're like, we're gonna, we're, we've set it on our hearts. We're, we're going to build a tower. It's going to reach to the heavens. Like, this is what we're going to go after. This is what we don't need God. We're going to show him that we don't need him, that we can do this on our own. It says, we want to make a great name for ourselves. I mean, we, we, read, we read the verses last week, but we see what God does. He scatters them across the globe. He... Um, changes their language, he multiplies their languages, they can't communicate, all, and all this. And it's not because God is just mean, but it was really a protection against themselves because of what, the, in, their, in their sin, what they were going to do. And so it's, it was an act of mercy. 
But I think it's that world, it's that culture, it's that type of place that really sets the stage for chapter 12 here with when God calls Abram. Because the sin is still present. We see this. The tanner said that when God flooded the earth, it, wasn't, it was a reset of sorts, but it wasn't a, a wiping away of sin. That we see right after the flood, we still see sin. We see Abraham go, or sorry, Noah go and get drunk. We see his, his sons start gossiping about their father's drunken nakedness. And we see, we see like the sin is still very present and still affecting man. And I want to, we want to continue to hammer this home. And I hope that talking about the sinfulness of man, keep, as we keep pointing to this, I hope it doesn't ever get to a place where it's just like, oh, you're being too repetitive. You're saying the same thing. Because as we always say, like, if we don't understand the gravity of our situation, if we don't understand the gravity of our sinfulness, the sinfulness of man, then we're never going to truly hear the greatness, the goodness of the gospel. So we're going to talk more about the world of Genesis 11 in a couple minutes. But as Nick was reading this morning, um, we see is that another genealogy, specifically of Noah's son Shem. And we see um, we kind of follow this family line down to a guy named Terah, Tera. and then he has three sons, and we're going to zoom in even further on his son named Abram. And here's a little fun fact. I went back and counted. I was telling Dale and Tanner this, that Abram is Noah's great, 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 great grandson. Eight. Eight greats. If you want to go back to Adam, add nine more greats. And you have the line from Adam to Abraham. That's 17. I'm not going to go through and say all those. Nine plus eight is 17, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, and I think that's a, that's a really cool part about the genealogies, is that you can actually trace it all the way back. I mean, pre, pre-flood, you had people living 900 years, so the, the time span there is still really, really large. But you kind of get a setting for... We're, we're, when we arrive at Abram, in the first six verses there, 27 through 32, is when we're really starting to zoom in on this one family. In our first sermon in Genesis, we, I, I was saying that the first 11, ver- 11 chapters of Genesis are God dealing or interacting with the world as a whole. We see his creation of the world, his provision. We see all these characteristics of God. But it, we zoomed in a little bit with Noah, but even then it was God dealing with the sins of the world. Through, through, through his interaction with Noah. But now we're zooming in on this guy named Abram. And what we're going to see is that this is going to really affect the rest of the storyline. The rest of Genesis is following this one family line. Much of the Old Testament is, again, following this one family line. And it's God choosing his people here in this one family. Look at verse 12. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to read these again. It said, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Let's go ahead and say how foundational and important these three verses are to the Bible. 
for the whole Bible. Like these three verses are so foundational. Like this is again God choosing a, a people, saving a people. Like God's redemptive work. Like it's just so foundational here in these three verses. And really, there's a it's gonna he's God is gonna say this to Abram multiple times. But this is so foundational because we have a promise for what God is going to do. He tells Abram, I'm going to make you great. I am going to bless you. I am going to give you a land. I am going to do all of this. There are huge promises that God is making to Abram. Huge promises. But I'm going to pump the brakes again, just for a second. Because, again, just to reinforce the land, the place, the time that, that Abram's hearing this. Remember, the, the, the Tower of Babel we talked about. We're just coming from chapter 11. I don't know exactly how many years were to, between that, that incident and, and where we are now. But it's often treated like this isolated incident. And, and yes, it absolutely is something that really happened. It's, it's something that took place the t- with this Tower of Babel. But it's also, I think, describing more of a state of the world, too. Because these people, what they were defining success, what they were trying to do was say, look at what we can do. People, the state of the world, the sinfulness of the world is saying, look what we can do. The success, what they were championing, what they were claiming was what they could accomplish. We can make ourselves great. We're going to make a name for ourselves. That's how they're defining themselves and what they can do, what they can accomplish. We see these people that are selfish and prideful, arrogant. And we see that's the state of the world. That's, that's what we have. Like, if you were hearing this for the first time, if you, I so wish, is looking at the Bible, that I, you could, I could do it with 100% fresh eyes. Look at it like it's the first time that no presuppositions, no, no preconceived notions, and just come at it completely fresh. I, I so wish that sometimes. Um, but imagine yourself in that place and you're, you're reading what the world is like at this time and it's, man, this world is prideful. They think, let's make a name for ourselves. We can do this. That's the worldview. That's, that's kind of where we are at this time. And then we hear this promise given to Abram. But notice... I haven't touched on it yet, but the verse, chapter 11, verse 30, with what Nick read, it says, Now Sarai, the wife of Abram, was barren, and she had no child. So just think about this for a second. You've got a promise. It says, you're going to be a great nation, you're gonna, which means lots of people. Your offspring going to be lots of people. You live in a world that says it's all about what you can do, what you can accomplish, the name you can make for yourselves. And Abram and his wife don't have the ability to do that. They're, they're barren. They cannot have children. Like there's this tension here, this world that says your success, your identity, your accomplishment, it's all based on what you can do. And yet... They can't do it. Based on that world, the standard the world was setting, 
based on the d definition of success in the world, they couldn't do it. Like if, you're Abram, if you're Abram, if you're Sarai, there is this tension here. Like God just told, said this is going to be reality, that you're going to be a great nation. You're going to obviously be fruitful and multiply. There's going to be lots of you. But it's so contrary to what the world says. And I think this, this same tension, the same tension is something that I think a, that we are familiar with today. Because the world had set a standard for them. That it was based on what you can accomplish. Your identity is based on what you can accomplish, the name you can make for yourself. The world had set a standard that they did not have the power or ability to meet. I feel like that's the same world that we live in. That says your identity, that your, your, your success, what, who you are is based on what you can accomplish, what you can, can earn, the job you have. And I think today a lot of people's identity are still, we still feel this tension because the world says you're supposed to be like this. We see it in TV shows, on social media, in the movies. To be successful, to do all those things, to be all you can be, you've got to go and accomplish. You've got to try harder. You've got to earn more. Maybe it's the, if it's a pursuit of money. It says, if that defines you, like you've got to have money to be successful. You've got to earn more. So people spend their lives seeking to do just that, to buy the better car, to buy the better house, to go up to social class. Because if that's how you're defined, if that's what success is, then you're going to try to go and get it. Like I feel like this definition of success is just a construct of the world. Because the world preaches a message. It preaches a standard that we can spend our lives trying to meet. Maybe it's that standard, that lifestyle standard. Maybe it's a standard of beauty. A physical image that we say, we've got to look like that. Because the world says, I have to look like that. And it becomes a defining thing about us, even when we think we don't have it. But we're defined by trying to get it. Because the world says you're defined by what you can accomplish, what you can go and get, the effort that you put forth, the name that you make for yourself. Like when the world is defined, when success is defined by performance, what you can do, what you can earn, and when it's what you have to contribute to the world, that that's where the value and worth is found and what you can contribute like, it's no wonder that the lives of babies are not valued, both inside the womb and outside the womb. It's no wonder because in a world where success and value is based on what you can contribute, what can a baby contribute, looking at it very harshly like that? It's no wonder. It's no wonder that the world, much of the world, does not value the life of the unborn and even the born. But what is, your, what is your standard of success, what, the, your value? What is that based on? Where is it derived from? 
Like if you felt these types of things try to define you, the job you have, the job you don't have, the money you have or don't have, the college degree you have or don't have, Because it's no wonder that we spend our lives chasing these things when, when we see the world defining us that way. But it's a construct of the world. And again, I, I feel like I know I'm reading a little bit, like taking chapter 11 and, and running a little bit, but I feel like just a world that is defined on making a great name for ourselves, defined on, on merit, on what you can make, it sounds a whole lot like today. And I feel like this infiltrates the church too. Like it infiltrates, we take the same mindset and, and apply it to our relationship with God. And think of it this way, like if it's what you can earn, there's a, there's a lot of checkboxes that we can try to go after. I mean, I, personally, there's been many times that I've started a Bible reading plan, whether it was a year long or two months long, that 25% into it, I'm like, I had to stop because it had become a checkbox. It had become something that I, that I felt like, I felt stressed if I hadn't done it yet, but I felt a whole lot better after I'd done it. And it wasn't because I was ingesting the word of God. It was because I had checked the box. And I think Bible reading plans are, are, are great. They're enormously helpful for a lot of people. And so I'm not trying to knock that. But I think, I think that we default to things we can do. We default to things we can accomplish. Martin Luther, he says that religion is the deep default of the human heart. And he's not saying religion in a good way. <laughs> There's a lot of very religious people who have no relationship with God. It's a thing they can do. It's these things they can accomplish. I think that's the way we default. It's the way I default. If you think of the Pharisees in the New Testament, Jesus talks about them a lot. They had built this system of laws and rules and all these things to follow. You've got to do this and this and this. And then they followed those to a T. And they were quick to say, look at these rules we're following. Look at all this that we're doing. Look at all these checkboxes that we're checking off. Look how religious we are. And I think that many of us can do that not so blatantly, but with many different things. Maybe it is with your Bible reading. Maybe it's with your prayer life. Maybe it's with going to church. Maybe it's with all these things we say, look, look at what we're doing. Look at what I'm doing. And we default to that state that's like, it's based on what I can accomplish. My relationship with God is based on what I can do. I'm doing well. I'm reading my Bible. Oh, I, I, I missed a day in my Bible reading plan. I'm not doing well. I, I, it's, it might sound like I'm beating a dead horse. But looking at this, like this is the worldview of the time. People that were basing their success and their identity and what they could accomplish. It is that that leads us to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. So as, as we read this again, I, I want to keep that worldview, keep that mindset of the state of the world. Making a name for themselves, earning, trying to do more. And let's read verses 1 through. I'm going to read 1 through 9 again. Now, 
the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, where Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. So starkly different, so different than the world that we just described, the world that we see, that the pressure on, on, on man accomplishing, on man making a great name for themselves. Again, foundational as we think of redemptive history and what salvation is. Seven times in these nine verses we hear God say, I am going to do this. Seven times in nine verses, God said, I am going to do this. And it's easy to say, all right, who's the main character of chapter 12? Abram. No, God is the one moving here. I will give you a new land. It's all God, things God is saying to Abram. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who dishonor you. I will give this land to your offspring. Genesis 12 is not a description. It's not about what Abraham is going to do. It's what God is going to do through Abraham. Like while Genesis 11 shows the the folly, the foolishness of man just trying to accomplish and to earn more and to make a great name for themselves, Genesis 12 changes things. Genesis 12 gives us a new way of thinking, a new design. Genesis 12 shows us that true identity, that true hope, that true success, that true worth is found in what God accomplishes. Now, if you have your Bibles, look at the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12 right there. And let's look for the reasons that God chose Abram instead of someone else. The qual- what, are, what qualities or characteristics do we see of Abram that led to God choosing him? There's nothing. Just to let you know, there's nothing. I'm really excited that many of you looked, though, because I asked you to. So that was awesome. Like, we, we get nothing. There's not one thing that says, this is why, this is, what, this is the reason, this is what Abraham had to offer. These are the qualities, these are the characteristics that he had. There's none of that. 
we really don't have a whole lot of backstory. We don't have a lot of it, but in Joshua 24, you don't have to flip there, but it'll be on the screen. Joshua 24, verse 2. This is Joshua speaking to the people. He says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abram, Abraham and Nahar, and they served other gods. This is his family. His family says, of his family, he said, they served other gods. The, the background of Abraham, of Abram, is a family that serves other gods. But then continue on to verse 3. It says, Then I, this is God speaking, took your father, Abraham, from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan. God chose Abraham, not based on anything he had done. All we know is he came from a family of pagans that worshipped other gods. But God says, I'm choosing him as my own to be my people. God's initiative. I took him. I acted. Like This here in Genesis 12, what we see is a display of God's grace. It's, like, it's a picture of what salvation looks like, of God choosing someone who does not deserve it, no merit, nothing to earn, and saying, they're going to be my own. It's the same thing. Tanner talked about this with Noah. We said it says, Noah found favor in the eyes of God. That was, Tanner said, another way to say that is that God has shown grace too. That anything good in Noah was only after that. It was only after God had shown him grace. Like we're getting a picture of salvation here. Getting a picture of salvation and what it looks like. No merit, no earning, but God saving. Because out of a Genesis 11 type of world that's based on merit, the name that we can make for ourselves, there's a new standard in Genesis 12. Because Genesis 12 is not a story of man rewriting his story. It's not a story of, of man fixing his heirs. Genesis 12 is not a story of, of man choosing God. Genesis 12 is a story of God choosing man and showing him grace and making a family out of him, making his name great and blessing him immensely in the process. We're going to see in the next couple of weeks the covenant that God is going to make with, his, with his, this family. The specific covenant is going to say, I'm going to do this through you. Not because you chose me, but because I chose you. And we're seeing a picture of what salvation looks like. Because sin is not gone. After the flood, I said this earlier, sin is not gone. The world is wicked. All sorts of things going on. And we see the whole Old Testament, all through Genesis and Exodus and all the way through, building towards its ultimate deliverance, all the way building towards this Savior, all the way building towards Jesus, His Son, the Son of God, that would be sent into the world to save sinners. In spite of their sinfulness, the Son of God would come and bear the penalty that sinners deserved. And he wouldn't come and save based on works or based on merit or based on accomplishment. It says he came and died 
for the ungodly. He came and died for those that did not deserve it. Just as Genesis 12 says nothing about why what was good in Abram, why God would have chosen Abram because of anything in Abram. It's the same in salvation. There's nothing that anyone could ever do to deserve salvation, could, that could deserve God's grace. And we see the rest of the verses this morning, 4, four through 9. We see Abram's response. And he, he goes into the land. Twice God reminds him, look at verse, I think it's 6 and 7. God reminds Abram what he's going to do. It says, Abram passed the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. And at that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Again, God is reminding Abram of what he's going to do. What he is going to do through Abram. And if you've been here on Sunday nights, we've been reading a lot recently about God fulfilling those promises. God giving them this land. We see all of those promises fulfilled. But I want you to see the differences here. On the left side, on one side, my left, your right, however you want to think about it, you've got Genesis 11. You've got a world of people seeking to make a name for themselves, define on what they can accomplish, what they can do, a world that it would have made zero sense for an old man to leave his family, to likely leave his worldly inheritance, to leave all that he knew and go. It's a world that was based on accomplishment, on the name you can make for yourselves, where a barren Sarai would have felt like she had very little to offer. This was a world that was based on greed, on pride. We see this picture of, of sin, of sinfulness, of what everything was like. But then on the other side, you've got Genesis 12. You've got God speaking to Abram. Not saying anything about effort, on accomplishment, but he says, I am going to make a great name. For you, I am going to give you this land. I am going to make you great. I am going to bless you. It's no longer about what man is trying to accomplish, but what God is accomplishing. It's based on what God is going to do. And this is salvation. That is exactly what salvation is. It's God accomplishing what man cannot. It's God acting on man's behalf. Because in salvation, it's not what we can accomplish. It's not what we can earn. But it's on what God lavishes upon us. Again, we live in a world that struggles to find purpose and identity and to find success in what they can accomplish and what we can accomplish. And I would say almost undoubtedly that many of us has felt this weight, this, this pressure to accomplish and to earn 
But here, just as with Abram, God is going to promise to accomplish on his behalf that through Christ, through the work of Christ on the cross, he has accomplished salvation on our behalf. The in Christ, God is saying, I am going to work on your behalf. I am going to save you. I'm going to rewrite your story, give you a new heart. It's not the success of the world. It's not trying to earn it. It's not trying to accomplish more. Genesis 12, we see some pretty lofty promises given by God to Abram. Like, this is going to drive Abram for, mo- for most of his life. And we're going to see that play out over the next couple months, probably, as we look at Abraham's family line. But in following God, he, he left his land. He left what he knew. And his, the Bible shows that he held fast these, to these promises, even when the reality of his world is going to look very different than what the promises are saying. He's gonna, him and his wife are not going to have children for quite a while longer. And God's going to keep saying, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to make a great nation. I'm going to do all these things. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at Hebrews 11 and see that, that through it all, he keeps saying that Abraham had faith in the promises of God. Listen, it's not, it's not just saying, oh, look at Abram. Look at, look at the faith that he had. It's saying, look at the God who his faith was in. The promises that he had made to Abram. It's all about what God was accomplishing. And because of what Christ has done, like we can hold fast to these same promises. The same promises that we see in Scripture. Because of what Christ has done on our behalf, we can know the promises are true. That his grace is sufficient. That he knows what we need. Matthew 6. We know that our identity no longer has to be in the world. It's not based on success where we earn the money we have or don't have. Proverbs 11, 28 says, Whoever trusts in his riches will fall but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. (laughs) Because of what Christ has done, our accomplishments, our our worth is not defined by anything that the world would say it's defined by. We no longer have to be consumed with trying to earn those things. We don't have to make a name for ourselves. And again, I'm not trying to stand up here and say, look how easy all this is. Look how easy all this is. Everything goes smoothly. We're going to see, for Abram, not everything goes smoothly. He's got a lot of ups and downs. He left a lot. (laughs) And fully trusting the promises of God, that might mean that we leave things behind too. Worldly desires, certain relationships, worldly pursuits, 
all of it. But what we saw that Abraham displayed was that what he was leaving, no way compared to what he'd been given. And for us, like we've been given Christ. We've been given Jesus. We've been given the adoption into the family of God, called out. We are freed, freed from that burden, the weight of trying to, to be successful in the world's eyes. We're freed from the burden of trying to earn a status, to be defined by what we can accomplish, by meeting a standard that the world sets. Do you feel the magnitude of this? And all this is based on the fact that salvation is only from God. Because if any of this was Abraham saying, that, that if any of this was God saying, well, this, Abraham had this, and this is why I chose him. If any of this is based on Abraham, this all falls apart. Because it is based on God. Because it's what he has accomplished in Christ this beautiful hope. God's saying like, because I love so much, he says he will save, that he will give a new heart, that he will give life. And that we are free from the Genesis 11 identity. Like, from a world that is defined by accomplishment and by effort and by merit and strength. Like, there's so much freedom in this. And we so quickly default back. I know that myself all the time, I need so many reminders, daily reminders, minutely reminders of grace that I didn't earn it, that it was given to me in Christ. You see, Abraham, Abram, not Abraham yet, Abram. That he, he said he built altars to the Lord. That, that these times that God reminded him of what he was going to do, he said, I want everyone to know what God said he was going to do. I'm going to build an altar to the Lord that everyone's going to see this and say, look what God said. And I'm not suggesting that we go and build altars. But... I think there's a call to remember, continually remember the promises that God makes, what we've been given in Christ. Because in salvation, God steps in and rewrites our story. But I think a new identity, having an identity that's, that's based in, in Christ and not based on what the world says, I think we're freed then to give him a blank check to say, God, wherever you say go, I'll go. Whatever you say give, I'll give. Whatever you say do, I'll do. Because we're not trying to attain worldly success. We're not trying to appease a world. We're not trying to go and look good for the world to see. We are freed to live that way. But as a church, we are able to display what that looks like to the world. Like, 
I want nothing more than for us to be known for what God has done, for what he is doing and what he will do from now into eternity. I mean, a while back you heard us present this, this vision for CRC. And it's gonna, something you're going to hopefully hear more and more about. But I've got a graphic up here. Um, you've seen it, most of you have seen it before. Grow, mature, reach. All of these things are a declaration of what God is doing. It's not what we're doing. It's not something that we're earning. But it's a declaration of what God is doing. As we grow, as God saves people and adds them to his church, that's a declaration, a, a show of what God is doing and giving life and growing his church. As we mature together, as we're made more and more into the image of Christ, like it's a display of the Spirit's work in our lives. It's what God is doing. As we reach, as we go into the world, as, as people see Christ in us, as we reach the world, it's what God is doing. It's Him reaching through us. Like all of this is based on what God is doing. All of it. We live in a world with so much need. So much need. People looking for identity looking where to base their value, looking how to gauge success, and they're looking in all the wrong places. Because the answer to that, where does value come from? What, where, where can we really find all of this? The answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus, and he is the only answer to this. Like in Christ, we are freed from the pursuit of success elsewhere, the, trying to prove through accomplishment or through effort. But it's grace. There's freedom in knowing that salvation is from God, accomplished through Christ. It's His doing. And that's something that we get to celebrate, we get to remember, we get to remind ourselves of often, we get to tell others about. Like as, as we respond, like that is something that is just so huge. Like Genesis 12 of God completely changing, changing the script for a, for a world that is based everything in their own accomplishments, in their own worth. And so as we respond, let's remind ourselves of that. Let's celebrate that. Let's repent in the ways that we continue to default back to trying to earn and celebrate what grace is and celebrate what we've been given in Christ. Let's pray.